This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today, our guest is Linda Rotenberg, co-founder and CEO of Endeavor Global, an international nonprofit with a mission to catalyze long-term economic growth by selecting, monitoring, mentoring, and accelerating the best high-impact entrepreneurs around the world. Endeavor aids entrepreneurs by offering crucial assistance, mentorship, networking, strategic advice, talent, skills, smart capital, and inspiration. Linda and her co-founder, Peter Kellner, created Endeavor in 1997, based on ideas that they, at the time, jotted down on the back of a napkin during a brainstorming session. Endeavor would be a different kind of nonprofit that identifies select entrepreneurs in emerging market countries, creates jobs, and transforms the perception of entrepreneurship around the world. Endeavor's main office is in New York City. It has grown to employ hundreds of people and establish affiliates throughout Latin America, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, Africa, and Europe. Over 900 Endeavor entrepreneurs have been selected to date, screened from over 37,000 total candidates. These 900 have created over 400,000 jobs and generated revenues of $7 billion. Linda has been named one of America's best leaders by U.S. News and one of Time's 100 innovators for the 21st century. She is one of the world's most dynamic experts on entrepreneurship, emerging markets, innovation, and leadership. She's a Harvard University and a Yale Law Law School graduate and is a member of the Young Presidents Organization, the Council on Foreign Relations, and the World Economic Forum. She's also the author of a wonderful new book, Crazy is a Compliment. The Power of Zigging When Everyone Else Zags. And we'll be talking about that in a few minutes. Linda, thank you so much for joining the conversation today. Pleasure to be here. I'd like to begin with the early part of your story and ask you to tell us a little bit about your early life and your education. I sense that there was a moment early on when you realized that you were going to go off the beaten path. And I wonder how that came about and what it was that motivated you. Sure. Well, I grew up in just outside of Boston, and it was I grew up in a traditional family. My parents were high school sweethearts. My dad was a lawyer. My mom uh, stayed home to raise three kids. And I went to college and law school. Some of the risk aversion rubbed up off on me because they were loving but risk averse parents. And uh, I got to law school and realized I had no interest in practicing law. So I found an opportunity to go to Latin America for a year. My parents assumed this was just a year and I'd be back at the law firm. And I fell in love with everything that I was seeing in places like Argentina and Brazil and Chile. And yet I noticed that this was now the mid-90s and back home, the celebrity entrepreneur was coming into fold. People were talking about Netscape and Yahoo and Steve Jobs and Howard Schultz and Oprah and 
when in when I was in Latin America, no one felt it was possible to start a business. That if they were not from one of the top 10 families, there was no way to access capital or mentorship. There wasn't even a word at that point in Spanish or Portuguese today. The word emprendedor is known, but there then it, there really was nothing. And I remember taking a taxi and realizing that my driver had an engineering degree and I couldn't believe he was driving uh, a, a taxi. And it sort of was my aha moment. I said, all right, what if there's an organization to help dreamers and innovators around the world in places that really were not hospitable to risk taking? Mm-hmm. But first I realized I had to take a risk myself and I went back to um, my Boston and teamed up with Peter and our first uh, I, meeting of Endeavor was at, around my parents' kitchen table and they heard us uh, plotting this global organization and they were not happy. <laughs> so my dad came over and reminded me that I do not have a trust fund and that, okay, if I didn't like the law, what about consulting or investment banking? That did not work. So my mother took a different tack and uh, she wanted grandchildren desperately and gently, kindly reminded me that my eggs were not getting any younger. Uh, So I've been saying this week that she was actually just 20 years ahead of her time because Apple and Facebook, of course, just announced they were going to pay for egg freezing. (laughs) (laughs) But nonetheless, I, I, this was my moment. This was, I think the juncture that many, if not every dreamer faces it's between doing what's safe and expected and doing what's unsafe and unknown and this uh, tension between fear and hope. And I not only knew that I had to move forward with this idea, but I think that that's why I so passionately have spent my life helping other dreamers who are feeling scared and stuck get unscared and unstuck. Ah, wow. Tell us a little bit also about your partner, Peter uh, Kellner. How did you uh, meet Peter? and, um, And then also if you could weave into that, uh, some of those, uh, I think what's really interesting to talk with someone who's at your stage of the journey is that you have now, now the ability to look back. And I th- always think it's fascinating how some of those really early principles, decisions, some of your early vision really does, you do see the continuity all the way through to where you are now. And if you could talk a little bit about some of those um, things that you put on that napkin that you now see alive around the world today. Yeah. yeah. Well, the reason Peter and I were put together is that I started going to everybody I know, telling them about this idea to help entrepreneurs in emerging markets, and people thought this was insane. I mean, now it seems obvious, but 20 years ago, people really did not believe you could be an entrepreneur outside the United States. And so... I guess Peter came back, he was at Harvard Business School and came back from a trip to China talking about the same thing. And people were like, okay, you two nutsos, you know, go, go meet. <laughs> and so we had a meeting of the minds. And I think that, you know, entrepreneurs are by nature contrarian. They're by nature somewhat outsiders because they're looking at the world differently. And so often if you find someone who's contrarian in the same way, it's a good idea to partner up. So we had this idea and we said, look, we're going to find people with the biggest dreams the greatest opportunity to build businesses that will matter and grow. And then basically I've been talking about creating the PayPal mafia, the PayPal group that um, that founded PayPal, sold to eBay, has gone on to mentor and angel invest and start new companies to really create an ecosystem. And that was the original idea. And that's really what's happened. One of our earliest moments, we needed funding. So this was a big issue. And uh, Peter had moved down to Latin America. I set up our offices in New York and couldn't find funders in New York because 
we were you know doing this insane thing in emerging markets and i got a 10 minute meeting with eduardo elstein who was argentina's largest landowner who'd made all his money by turning a 10 million dollar check from george soros into this landowning empire wow. so five minutes into our meeting uh i turned to him and i said he said i you probably want a meeting with soros and i said no 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 i want your time your passion and two hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> so Eduardo turns to his right hand guy and says, "Esta chica está loca. This girl is crazy." <laughs> and so I answer in Spanish that I'm disappointed that he's the guy that famously walked into Soros's office and came out with a ten million dollar check. He's lucky; only asked him for two hundred thousand. <laughs> and at that moment, he t he turns around. I didn't know what he was going to do, and he turned around, took out his checkbook, and wrote me the check for two hundred thousand dollars. Became chairman of Endeavor Argentina, and I I got this nickname of La Chica Loca, and I decided, all right, you might as well own it, and that's why my book is titled Crazy is a Compliment. It became my motto, and I say now, if you're not called crazy when you're starting something new, you're not thinking big enough. That's such a great story, and it does really get to one of your, your central themes. Um, I wonder if, you, if that's such a moment of departure, and I wonder if you could take a few minutes and just tell us in broad strokes, you know, how the organization scaled and, and what were some of the challenges and, and what are some of the things that you're most proud of now. Obviously, you've had a huge impact. Well, I should say, so we're now, Endeavor's now in 20 countries. We've screened 40,000 entrepreneurs and selected 1,000 through a very, very rigorous process. They spend a year basically going through a search and selection process, culminating in an international uh, panel. We have one go taking place today in Istanbul, where 100 people from around the world have flown in to, uh, to kind of be part of this judging panel. And so we've selected these 1,000 entrepreneurs, worked with them over a period of several years, provided mentors and advisory boards and access to capital and leadership training. Several of our entrepreneurs have found spouses through Endeavor, so I say we are a full-service organization. <laughs> uh, and today they've created 400,000 jobs. They now generate $7 billion annually, and two-thirds of the jobs and three-quarters of the revenues come after their involvement with Endeavor. So I really find that we find them in these moments where they've gotten some traction, they've gotten something off the ground, but they are feeling stuck. That's why some people have called me the entrepreneur whistle but what I say is that I help dreamers get unstuck. So that's what we do. We find people who have the opportunity to really create many more jobs and to really grow, but need some help along the way. That's just fascinating. And I think that um, I'm an Ashoka fellow, and it sounds so much like you're doing for the business entrepreneur what yeah. Ashoka has attempted to do uh, for nonprofit entrepreneurs. I got my apprenticeship at, with Bill Drayton at Ashoka. And in fact, I told Bill that I offered to, the, to him first. I said, we should do Ashoka for the private sector. But of course, uh -huh. Ashoka's mission is large enough. He was already thinking big enough. He was already crazy enough. So he gave me and Peter the blessing to go out and do Endeavor. Um, there are obviously differences, but it was a point of departure. I call ourselves uh, a, a child of, of Ashoka. He says we're... Bill says we're a sister organization, so very kindred spirits. That's so that's so great, and it just it just shows you how infectious you know creativity is, and 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 uh, I'm sure he just looks at your work with a, a sense of um, 
wonder and and um, pleasure. Bill, Bill has been very generous, and I will tell you the thing that he tapped into most: that it wasn't about the money that made the Ashoka Fellows. Mm-hmm. Same with the Endeavor Entrepreneurs on the business end. It's this feeling of being part of a community. And Ashoka, mm-hmm. it's the fellowship. Endeavor, it's the Endeavor Entrepreneurs Network. It's a sense of people validating your your crazy idea. I think entrepreneurship, whether in the business or social sector, can be a very lonely endeavor. And so to get a community that believes in you, that thinks what you're doing is important and meaningful, that validation, I think, is what matters most. And Bill tapped into that early on. So um, two quick questions. One is, you've now got this uh, real track record of selecting um people and I wonder what what's one of the biggest lessons you've learned from experience so we know we, we probably you probably came in with a lot of ideas but then of course uh, you know when you get out there in the real world and interact with real people there are always some differences and I wonder what's the thing that surprises you most uh, as you look back well there are several things that surprise me, but one is how limited our notion of entrepreneurship in the United States has become. I've been going around saying you don't need a hoodie to be an entrepreneur, right. and that's one of the reasons I wrote Crazy as a compliment, and my eyes were just opened when I saw these incredible innovators around the world, but who were, first of all, women and older people and people in you know in very limited circumstances. Some were middle class and others were much poorer and they just had an idea that was going to make life better and these were business ideas that could generate a lot of money and a lot of jobs but they started from not who's going to create the best new app or who's going to get venture capital but solving real you know problems that were missing in these countries and and that inspired me and a number of people taking family businesses um, a next generation taking it to the next level and we don't think of that as entrepreneurship but it was it involving the same risks the same innovative you know opportunities the same dealing with chaos and i felt that you know that we needed to broaden our definition of entrepreneurship. So that's really been my biggest lesson is that entrepreneurship can happen in any organization. It's about having the right mindset and the right skill set to make change. And let me ask you this question because obviously you're a product now of, uh, you know, some of the best educational institutions that the nation has to offer. And I wonder what's your reflection uh, working with so many entrepreneurs about what we need to do in our education system to strengthen uh, this learning so that people uh, are able to do this in a way that's more easy and open. Look, I think American education is still the envy around the world. I think that efforts to develop you know, uh, good thinking, analytical thinking, and storytelling and creative writing on the one hand, and on the other, the STEM, the science, technology, and, uh, engineering, and math that we talk about a lot in policy circles here are all important. Yeah. But I think one of the challenges with uh, you know, American education is that we tend to focus on over planning and not on doing. So, so many American entrepreneurs are building these, you know, 75 page business plans and these PowerPoints and the people I'm meeting in emerging markets are saying, stop planning, start doing, and let's just see a problem and, and attack it. And I think the lack of resources and some of the lack of opportunities there, in fact, make people less risk averse and they're willing to you know, step out of their comfort zone and just solve a problem that needs solving. And I think 
think here we sometimes overthink and overplan a little bit and crave stability when in fact stability favors the status quo but chaos actually benefits the entrepreneur you need a little disruption if you're trying to disrupt the status quo so you're getting into some of the themes now that are in your book and let me just say i read a lot of books in this genre and for our listeners this is a terrific piece of work it's engaging funny, honest, very provocative. And um, I just really recommend it to everyone who is listening to this. And I would love to get your thoughts in a few areas that really resonated with me. Sure. Um, so one is just the idea, of course, of being different. And you have this wonderful phrase about um, fanning the foolish fire. And um, I re this really resonated with me because mm -hmm. I do think there's this theme in entrepreneurship that uh, entrepreneurs have the courage to stand alone. And uh, they, they're not afraid that people think their idea um, is crazy. Uh, talk, talk with us a little bit about that. Obviously, that's one of the big themes in the book. It is. And what I've realized, I, working in 20 countries, is that what I thought would be the barriers, I thought it would be structural or financial or cultural, it's really psychological. And the biggest thing holding people back from pursuing their dream, whatever their dream may be, is themselves. And I mentioned my own kitchen table moment. And right. so many people I meet talk about that moment when they had to give themselves permission to go forward and know that, yes, people were going to call them nuts, but that the riskier thing was actually doing nothing. And I think this is really the biggest lesson I learned is that Entrepreneurs in the end aren't risk maximizers, they're risk minimizers, but they know that the riskier path is doing nothing, either because they're so convinced of their idea or even inside companies. I talk a lot about entrepreneurs inside companies. And you know, today our jobs aren't safe and our companies aren't safe. Michael Dell told me today there are the quick and there are the dead. So I think that the people who are risk averse are actually taking a riskier path. But as I said, the hardest thing is to allow yourself that permission to know you're seeing the world differently, you're zigging when everyone else zags, and you're probably going to be called crazy for it, just as every other innovator before you has been. That's so true. And I think that that reshaping of risk that you mentioned, where you realize the opportunity cost of doing nothing is so enormous and dwarfs yeah. the, the cost of um, staying you know, where you are. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. The other thing, another idea in your book that I found very uh, resonant is the idea of really focusing on um, doing rather than planning. Personally, I, I absolutely detest you know, sitting around in meetings, I want to get my feet on the ground. And the idea of learning from experience and something that a lot of entrepreneurs talk about, which is learning from failure. You know, I wonder yeah. if you could talk about those, those themes and how you have seen that in your work. 
Yeah, well, I think that while 40% of Endeavor businesses are pure sort of tech, 60% are not. And I think I've learned that so many people, you know, are really just out to solve a problem that they had, as I said, in their in their daily life. And so they have to be doers. I've come to realize that entrepreneurship is just really a fancy word of a way of saying you're a doer. Um, but in terms of failure, this is obviously the biggest fear people have. Um, but and and this is what holds people back, especially if they work inside a company. I've talked to so many managers in Fortune 500 companies who say, Yeah, yeah, I know I need to be more agile and nimble. But if I fail, I'm losing my budget or my job. And so I actually looked, What can you do if you are the boss, whether it's an entrepreneurial firm or a large firm? or social enterprise to encourage your workers to be more entrepreneurial. And it turns out that there are strategies and failure has a lot to do with it. So two examples I talk about in the book, one is Ratan Tata, who runs one of India's largest conglomerates. He actually instituted a prize for the best failed idea. <laughs> so isn't that a great, I think we should That's all great. do that. And then WD-40, I never knew this about the com company, but the history, WD-40, we all use it you know, to get our squeaky doors fixed. It was started by a guy named Norm Larson in 1953, who was trying to solve the rust problem in, in missiles. 39 uh, formulas for water displacement fail, the 40th works. When he realizes that this can be a company uh, that sells directly to consumers and not just to the, the, um, the you know, big missile uh, developers, he looks in his lab book and sees water displacement 40th formula. So the name of the company, WD-40, has failure embedded in it. And today, oh, isn't that great? That's great. So, and today, the CEO says, all right, we're going to have learning moments. And for every project, we're going to talk about what went wrong and not just what went right. So when you see failure is really just part of a process, an iteration, right? Then it's not so daunting. But at the same time, back to being risk minimizers, Richard Branson told our entrepreneurs, the goal is contained disasters. Now, who's yeah. more of a maverick than Richard Branson and Virgin? But even he says, contain disasters. Make sure failure isn't going to end everything. Yeah, exactly. That idea, I, that also I found very true because I think people in the general public see entrepreneurs as these big gamblers, but the reality is really different that, and um, I like to say, you have captured it in a, a couple of ways in the book, but the idea of making a lot of small bets and a bet that you can tolerate losing, but yes. then really focusing on learning from that experience, and um, and I think there's something also about how you approach failure do you see it as a negative or do you find it as a fascinating thing where you go wow what happened there how can i learn from what happened and uh, right. talk a little bit about that yeah well i think there's two things one is talking about dreaming big but executing small and that the idea that really you've got to break down entrepreneurship into a series of mini steps and and not try to you know, bite off more than you can chew. But in terms of risk, I mean, one of the things that I spent a lot of time delving into in Crazy as a Compliment is debunking our myths around entrepreneurship and risk, because we think of these entrepreneurs, as you said, as people who bet the farm, who go all in. It turns out, so number one, half the Inc. 500 companies, half the fastest growing companies in the U.S. were started with $5,000 or less. Wow. Not, isn't That's that, an amazing statistic. Isn't that amazing? Not <laughs> millions of dollars. And with crowdfunding, this is making it even easier. I was just with three African-American moms in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn a few weeks ago. They 
raised $27,000 and, and created a retail bakery shop out of that. So you don't need lots of money. Number two, you know, we think of entrepreneurs as giving everything up from day one. And I get people saying, well, but I have a mortgage. I have a job. Turns out some of the best innovators keep their day job initially, at least. So Sarah Blakely, who founded Spanx, uh, spends two years selling fax machines while her idea is taking off. Phil Knight of Nike, the just do it guy, spends almost a decade doing other people's taxes while someone else sells the sneakers. So <laughs> the point is, you can wager a few chickens, but you don't have to bet the farm. That's such great advice. I mean, and really practical for people who uh, are perhaps planning a venture right now. I wanted to ask you also about chaos. You have some fascinating things to say about chaos that also rang true to me. You know, people in the general public, they want to run from chaos, but the entrepreneur sees chaos very differently as somehow connected to opportunity. Talk, talk about that. Yeah. Chaos is your friend. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we work in a very chaotic environments. So we've worked in Greece and Argentina during currency crises. We've worked in Egypt during revolution. And what I've come to say is that when economies turn down, entrepreneurs turn up. And that honestly, in many of these places, you can't break in when things are stable. But in fact, your ability to raise, to hire talent, your ability to kind of capture some market share really increases in times of a little bit disruption. And that's where the entrepreneurs get creative. But my favorite story in the book actually has is on this theme. And it takes place in the 1800s in France. And a young widow named Barbe Nicole Ponsardin inherits a small family winery. And she's put in charge of a business she knows nothing about. And she revolutionizes it. She she invents the process of modern champagne by turning bottles upside down and freezing off excess yeast. So her 1811 vintage is said to be the first modern champagne, but just as she perfects the process, the Russians invade the wine region and all the experienced wine owners shutter their doors. Barb Nicole spots a marketing opportunity and resolves to get the Russian army wasted. And <laughs> <laughs> this works well, good strategy. And she takes one more calculated risk. She runs the blockades, gets her bottles right outside of St. Petersburg and Moscow. And as soon as the peace treaty signed, her bottles arrive first. Tsar Alexander announces he will drink only the widow. Well, Veuve is the French for widow, and Barb Nicole's husband, late husband, was Francois Clicquot. It's the story of Veuve Clicquot and the story of how a woman in the 1800s embraces the turbulence around her, takes smart risks, and becomes the first woman to run a multinational. Yes. You know, I mean, that, is, that should be a movie, to tell you the truth. That's Isn't that great? A, yeah. How come we don't know the story? <laughs> yeah. Now we do. That's fantastic. You know, um, so for, for listeners who are getting intrigued about this book, there's also a wonderful part of the book which talks about going big, which is, you know, uh, I think a lot of people can start things, but of course, then there's a big drop off of people who really take their ideas to scale. And um, you have some very wonderful and simple, uh, but not, not simplistic advice um, in there. And it's, we can't go through the whole list, but I'd like to pick a couple again that really resonated with me. Um, you have something about closing doors, which is, I believe, relates to the power of focusing on, on, on uh, what's essential about your work. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, look, I mentioned Sarah Blakely of Spanx and Phil Knight of Nike, and it is okay at first to have one foot in and one foot out. I think that's actually important for people to hold down jobs and mortgages. But at some point, what I found a lot is that 
by the time people's businesses are paying the bills and they really could go all in, they keep that psychological crutch and that foot in the door of the old world. And at some point, you know, I've had to counsel entrepreneurs that you have to close doors and that really it's only when you go all in that things can go big. Now, if you want a lifestyle business, if you want something that's more of a project, that's fine. But if you've decided to go big, then you have to commit. And at that point, focus and go all in. Exactly. That makes so much sense. And, and that we're giving this terrible advice to keep doors open and it paralyzes people. That's why I say close doors. Right. And again, it's to me connected to the concept of opportunity cost. Just the idea that when you try to do everything, you end up doing nothing. And um, so you, that idea of focus. The other one that just cracked me up, but it's so true. Uh, fire your mother-in-law. <laughs> I, yes, I used to yeah. say number 101 was fire your mother-in-law. It was usually the father, but it was easier to say your, your mother-in-law. Um, so many people start things with friends and family. And it is understandable because these people are near you. You have conversations. They share your tastes. But the problem is most family businesses or businesses start by friends lack a formal way of resolving disputes. I see so many people, we're co-CEOs, we all get along, <laughs> until they don't. And so yeah. I say you have to have a startup prenup. And this sounds so awful to people, really it's helpful. When things are calm, when everything's going well, write down decisions when things are not aligned, write down what happens when one person wants a lifestyle business and one people, person wants to grow or when one person's skills no longer suits the job they're in. Because when passions run later on, then if you don't have a formal agreement, this is when we've seen many companies implode. Right. right. Get a startup prenup. Then you can fire your mother-in-law and still show up for a family dinner. And there's another very funny concept, I think, which one of your children uh, described that you're not firing people, you're just helping them find another place to be happy. Yes, my, my girls... <laughs> I was terrible originally at firing people and I had to get better at it. And my girls must have picked up on this because when they were five, they're now nine, but they were five and they were playing office with some friends and someone was getting canned. And Tybee, one of my daughters says, yes, well, my mommy doesn't actually fire people. She just tells them they'll be happier elsewhere. That's so great. That's so great. Um, the, um, the last part of the book, uh, which you're talking about your children, reminds me of yes. that. So, uh, And I think this is, again, an area where your book is very different. A lot of people are writing books about how to be great in business, but you're going one step further and uh, really talking about something that th the theme is to go home. And, and I think what you're really talking about is the long game balance in your life really remembering what matters there for listeners yeah. is a beautiful and very heartfelt letter to your daughters in there, um, which I found really enriched Thank the book for me. And, um, Thank I, you. yeah. And I think there's an idea in there that, um, you talk about Jim Collins work, the, and he has this wonderful thing about the genius of and, and that so many yes. people think that we have to choose that we're either going to be great at, at uh, we're going to be great um, professionals, or we're going to be at right. home with our children, but that there is a way to find balance. Um, it's hard, but it's possible. Talk, talk a little bit about some of the thematics there in that part of the book. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Jim Collins. I don't like, I, I agree with him that there's the tyranny of the or. So instead of go big or go home, I talk about go big and go home. Yeah. And look, this was something that was an evolution for me. It did not come naturally, but I think it's ironic that so many, what are business books about? What are entrepreneurship books about? They're about people's dreams. And yet, 
people have dreams to make better lives for the people they love. And yet we never talk about that. And I learned myself that you can't be a wor- you know, workaholic and expect to attract and retain talent or to have a sane, you know, family life. And I actually don't like the word balance. I find it very stressful. Things are never in balance. There's no balance. <laughs> there's no perfection. What there is is work-life integration. And I think two things. One is if you can marry your passions and your values, and I know millennials care a lot about this and, and have meaningful work and explain to your family, you know, why you're doing what you're doing. This is one of the reasons I wrote that last chapter as a letter to my daughters. I wanted them to understand why it is that mommy goes out and, and helps these entrepreneurs, these dreamers every day. So first of all, I think that's important is, is integrating your work and your life. And then that's not enough. You have to have flexibility. You actually have to be there as well. And I honestly believe today when not only are women clamoring for more time at home, but Baby Center, the top parenting website, has studied fathers who say today 75% are involved in their kids' bedtime routines, want to get home for family dinner, and millennials especially are really prioritizing this flexibility. And I think that the workplaces, it's no longer going to be about who has the great foosball table. It's going to be who allows people to do a great job and get ahead at work, but still be present at home. And I think that that's what the the world has to come around to. People want to be present with their families, whether it's raising children or so many people now in our sandwich generation are caring for elder parents. And I think the workplaces that accommodate this are going to be the ones that attract the most talent. And again, I had to learn this the hard way, but my daughters told me that I can be an entrepreneur for a short time, but I am a mommy forever. There you so go. That was the best there piece of go. advice I ever heard. And I think there's something in there. It's obviously reflected in in the uh, ecosystem that produces your work and particularly in the credits there are so many people that you share the credit with and I think that an element of this work-life integration is about having a strong enough team isn't it it's about making sure that uh, there you have uh, the support that you working with great people and so that no particular person has to always carry all of it is that true yeah, and I spent a lot of time talking about leadership. I mean, one of the things that you talked about going big earlier that holds people back are their own weaknesses as leaders. I, I know in my case, that was for a long time. And we actually came up with a pers- an entrepreneur personality type because not everyone needs to be Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs. And so there's different types of entrepreneur personalities and leadership personalities. Everyone has a strength and weakness. You have to know yourself. But the other thing is, as a, as a woman, uh, as a female leader, I thought you had to be project strength and confidence and independence. And it was after my own struggles and, you know, some illness in my family and raising these young twins that I had to completely let my guard down and break down the walls. And after I did this, some team members told me that while I had been superhuman before, they found that unrelatable. And that as soon as I became real to them and a real person, then they wanted to follow me anywhere. And so I've learned that leaders today need to be less super and more human. And that if we do that, then we're going to have people who, who, who want to take this journey with us. Yeah, it's really it's something that I've written about in my own work, which is this idea mm-hmm. that um, you know that really it's about creativity and this wonderful quality that I think entrepreneurs have, which is bringing out the the creative power in people and making teams that are balanced where everyone feels that they're part of the mission, and that that is so much at the. Uh, not all entrepreneurs do that. <laughs> That'd but, be nice if they all did. But they. Just- 
can and and great entrepreneurs i think do that you know i mean they 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 find uh you know that they, and that is what allows you to step back a little bit at, yeah. at a key moment. Well, the sense of co-creation, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, so we're coming to the end of our time, and as I shared with you in our pre-conversation, many of our uh, audience are people who are social entrepreneurs or studying yeah. social entrepreneurs, students. We always ask for some advice from our guests for people who are beginning their journey. Obviously, this whole conversation has been about advice, but I'd like to take you back to uh, a, a quote um, from your book, which I found very, again, uh, provocative and resonant, and maybe we could riff off of this for some okay. advice. Um, but um, in the letter that you write in the book to your daughters, you talk about um, looking at the world through I like this phrase, rainbow-colored glasses. And then you, you say that, you know, entrepreneurship is not just about having a new idea, but it's really about, this is the phrase, being like a drop of rain to a beam of light. What does that mean to you? And, and maybe could we draw some inspiration and guidance okay. for entrepreneurs who are listening? Well, I was talking about the, the, the process by which, you know, rain, rainbows are actually created, right, through the drop of light. And, and that I think that, you know, entrepreneurs are people who don't accept the world as is, but imagine a better world and then try to make that happen. And this is especially the case with social entrepreneurs. I call them dolphins in my lexicon. But I think that these are people who are not satisfied with the way things are and to push themselves to make the world better to improve people's lives in so many countless ways. And I think that, you know, social entrepreneurs have these skills, but they need the courage, they need the mindset, and they need some of the practical, you know, takeaways for how to take their idea and get it off the ground. I think that as someone who runs a very business-oriented nonprofit myself, you know, we are as, you know, metrics-driven as the next people. We focus on, you know, on making sure the market is attuned to our idea, and yet the mission is also infused. And so I think that if you can marry the psychic equity and people's passions around the idea with making sure that the execution follows and never forgetting that to go big, we actually do have to, you know, execute and focus on, on the hard things as well as on the soft things. I, I think that there's no better life now for them for social entrepreneurs. And I think that there's so many social businesses now. You see companies like Warby Parker and Tom's Shoes and others really attracting millennials. And here's an interesting study that I will leave you with, mm -hmm. which is that uh, there was a survey of 12,000 millennials this year, and they asked for the top 25 places to work. Over half were government agencies and nonprofits, including wow. many hospitals. It's surprising. Sitting at number one, above Google, above Amazon, above Disney, St. Jude Children's Hospital. Wow. So what I've been saying for a long time is that nonprofits and social entrepreneurs have a lot to teach the rest of the business world. This idea that you can give people meaning and purpose and a sense of this psychic equity, I think is something that, that the for-profit, pure for-profit world is going to start to, to learn from social entrepreneurs. Oh, that's terrific words of wisdom and inspiration. And uh, so 
for people who want to support Endeavor, the best place to find you on the web is Endeavor.org, and we will yes. put up that link um, on the uh, podcast link. And then also uh, encourage everyone to go. The best place to find your book, Crazy is a Compliment, would be on Amazon.com. Would you recommend Amazon as a place to go? Amazon or any one of your independent bookstores, ask them as well, or go on Amazon, bn.com, uh, Barnes & Noble stores as well. Great. We'll put, up, we'll put up all those links. Linda, thank you so much for your amazing work and your wonderful book. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Great, great to be here. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.